And then the first case they sent me out on was a federal case in Memphis, Tennessee. And it was these police officers that were ripping off drug dealers and then working with their gang buddies to resell the drugs. It was like being thrown into a movie. I'm pretty sure that first one you described is actually a plot of a Denzel Washington movie yeah, called Training, Training Day. Day. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Public Key, the podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. If you follow politics in the United States, you're certainly familiar with the feeling of gridlock. Getting any new legislation through our divided Congress is really difficult. Even necessary legislation like annual spending bills, they just don't seem to happen easily. And for those of us hoping for new frameworks to address emerging technology like artificial intelligence or cryptocurrency, well, we're left holding our collective breath long past the point of turning blue. But you may have noticed a new approach getting attention in crypto policy circles, which is to bypass the federal political system entirely and start applying efforts at the state level. So my guest this week is Attorney General from Tennessee, Jonathan Scrimm. His office works on an amazing range of topics, from the opioid crisis, to big tech's influence on children, to consumer protection in the crypto space. AG Scrimetti emphasized the need for technical literacy in the judicial system, and the need for technological countermeasures to combat online scams and crimes. I think it's a great conversation. Now one thing before we start the episode, during our 10 years at Chainalysis, we've had the pleasure to support customers like Bors Stuttgart Group, who are one of the largest and oldest European stock exchanges, operating for over 160 years. In a recent interview with Dr. Sven Hildebrandt, who's the Executive Director for Business Development Strategic Partnerships at Bors Stuttgart Digital, he told our team, the great thing about this broader perspective that Chainalysis gives us is that we're able to incorporate more and more data points into our decision-making process. So to find out more about how Bors Stuttgart Group leverages Chainalysis tools to mitigate risk in the cryptocurrency markets, you can head down to the show notes and click on the link to watch the full interview. This week, I am joined by Tennessee Attorney General, Jonathan Skirmetti. Sir, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Ian. Now, we've been fortunate to host prosecutors and law enforcement professionals on the podcast, but I'm honored to say you're our first Attorney General, first of many, hopefully. But perhaps we can start with an explanation of what does a day in your life look like? What are the things that you focus on as an Attorney General? So my office has a, a really broad portfolio. We defend the state in all litigation against the state. And that's everything from people who damage their cars hitting a pothole on a state-maintained road to these giant constitutional cases and multi-billion dollar suits against the state. Uh, we also have consumer protection, which I know we're going to talk about more. And that eats up a lot of time as well. Uh, and then there's just back and forth with the federal government. Sometimes they come in and litigate with us. Sometimes we litigate with them. And that's all part of the check and balances of our system. So in any given day, usually there are case updates, there's conversations with clients, which may be the governor's office or legislators or different agency heads. Uh, I try to get out and talk to student groups and other community groups, rotary clubs, and just make sure that there's transparency and that we're educating them. There are frequently media inquiries about different cases we're working on. And then I have about 360 people on staff. So a lot of the day is just management, just figuring out who's doing well, you know, hiring people, moving people around and, and trying to make sure the office keeps running. It surprises me to hear that the scale of your staff is that large, actually. I wouldn't I would not have picked that number, but given the scope and range of activities that you're involved in, it must be necessary, right? It's Unfortunately, yeah. We have about sixteen thousand open matters at any given time. Unbelievable. Now before you became attorney general, you've been in the legal field for almost two decades. You spent quite a bit of time at the Department of Justice. Can you talk about some of the work there? I think reading your profile, you get the opportunity to work on some pretty exciting cases. Yeah, I was the 
luckiest young prosecutor in the country. It was phenomenal. So I went to the civil rights division after I clerked for a judge for a year out of law school. And I was in the criminal section there. And the portfolio in the criminal section is official misconduct, hate crimes, and human trafficking. And so I did six months of basically boot camp. It was doing domestic violence prosecutions in DC, just misdemeanor prosecutions, very intense. And then the first case they sent me out on was a federal case in Memphis, Tennessee. I'd never been to Memphis before. And it was these police officers that were ripping off drug dealers and then working with their gang buddies to resell the drugs. It was like being thrown into a movie. And then a, a few months into that, some of the local police officers and some of the ICE agents there had identified this human trafficking operation. It was these underage Mexican girls. And it was, I believe, the first trafficking case in Tennessee. And since I was already down, they said, why don't you work on this one? Uh, and that ended up leading to a, a substantial number of trafficking cases I worked over the course of my federal career. And then we had these insane hate crimes. We had a group that was conspiring to assassinate President Obama. There was a racially motivated murder of a law enforcement officer in Memphis. The Aryan Alliance burned down a house of worship in Columbia, Tennessee. So, and I mean, I was just a few years out of law school on these. They, they were terrible crimes, but when you're a prosecutor, that's what gets you going. So I wish they had never happened, but I was really glad I got to be part of the response. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that first one you described is actually a plot of a Denzel Washington movie yeah, called Training Day. Day. Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's amazing. I didn't I don't know if that movie was actually based on that case, but it it sounds like uh straight out of the the screenplay. I'm curious, you know, this is a cryptocurrency podcast. Did you actually have the opportunity to encounter any cases where cryptocurrency came into play during your time at DOJ? So I never did. I left DOJ in I think the tail end of 2013. I know crypto was a thing then, but we were starting to get educated on it. Most of the cases I was working at that point were either human trafficking, dealing with relatively disorganized groups, you know, just like one, two, maybe three traffickers working together, nothing on a big scale or the occasional hate crime or corrupt police officers. So it wasn't really my bag at that point. You know, I'm a tech aficionado, so I was aware of it. I really yeah. wish I had been mining back then. But, <laughs> um, you know, I, it, it was more seeing the policies getting developed than actually being hands-on with anything. Yeah, it's kind of amazing when I think about the technological change that's happened in just the, the last 10 years, right? Since you left DOJ, I think about my own career, you know, the evolution of things like cloud and kind of everyone now carries around their mobile phone. We're kind of all permanently connected to each other through technology. I have to imagine that that has played a huge shift in the types of criminal activity that you see now as, as AG. I, I had a conversation recently with some prosecutors out of the New York area who were describing there's actually a general gap in gang activity, where the older gang members are kind of what you imagine from movies, right? They sell drugs and they have kind of street corner operations. Younger gang members see that as too dangerous, either due to violence or fear of prosecution. And if shifted into financial crimes in a fairly major way, that fact just completely blew me away. I didn't realize that these types of shifts were happening until that conversation. Are you seeing similar things? To some extent. So unfortunately, we still have a lot of the traditional violent gang crime. It's it's yeah an ongoing problem and hopefully that will shift at some point but we're seeing a lot of crimes especially against the elderly where mm -hmm. people are using technology i don't want to to skip ahead too much but you know there's an ai component there and i think that's going to get incredibly more sophisticated very very quickly and we need to figure out countermeasures and we need to equip people to to protect themselves from that because it's an issue with online crime is it's not necessarily localized so you can be preyed on by somebody in a different continent uh, and we 
we see that frequently, you know, for a while, ransomware was the thing. I, it seems like the incidence of that has decreased. I don't know the statistics, but uh, there was a stretch where that seemed to be very widespread. And it looks now like there's a lot more individualized scamming and hitting elderly people for their life savings uh, in a disturbingly effective way. So there's a lot more sophisticated financial crime out there. And because it's so easy to move money around, because mm -hmm. it's so easy to communicate, all sorts of friction that used to exist, having to show up in person or, or at least try really, really hard to gain someone's confidence, those protections aren't there anymore. And I'm sure it's a heavy burden on the financial institutions trying to defend against this stuff. And I know it's a heavy burden on law enforcement on the back end. Yeah, the, the question about ransomware actually is an interesting one. So it was at its peak in the summer of 21. If you remember Colonial Pipeline getting shut down by ransomware, that was kind of the height. We put out some research in the area and, and described it as kind of the summer of ransomware. And we actually saw a decline in ransomware activity in the, the second half of, of last year, but it appears to be re-accelerating. It's one of the faster growing areas of crypto-related financial crime, at least, that we're tracking. So the decline doesn't appear to be permanent. It, there's a research it's coming, unfortunately. Now, I know you have some expertise in cybersecurity and particularly cyber law. Reading your profile, it looks like you actually taught at the University of Memphis for a number of years. I'm super curious, what would I have learned if I'd had the opportunity to, to take your class? So the biggest takeaway was the law does not do a great job of keeping up with technology. And in particular, you know, we saw this unbelievable acceleration over, say, the last 30 years or so. And for a long stretch, you could just tell there were judges that didn't have much exposure. My favorite case, I think it was from 96, and it was this court writing about the internet, except they didn't say the internet, they said internet, and it was in all caps, and it kept appearing over and over through the opinion. Like, we got our first modem, I think, when I was like 10 years old back in the 80s. My dad was a, a computer scientist, and so we were always a little ahead of the curve and spent money we probably shouldn't have on technology. So by the time the judges were writing this, it was already so dated, and nobody who actually worked with this stuff talked that way. But there was a just a giant gap. And the more ubiquitous the technologies become, the smaller the gap becomes. But it's still there, you know, particularly with AI acceleration upon us. You know, I worry we're going to see the expansion of that again. At this point, though, you at least have judges who understand the basics of what it means to do something online and what social media is. And you don't have to explain every little thing like it's some completely alien esoteric technology that normal people don't know. We've closed the gap a little bit for the time being. I'm glad to hear you call out this idea of technical literacy being necessary in the judicial system. Like it's something that I think is necessary everywhere. I have kids that are, you know, elementary, middle school age, and I'm kind of encouraging them every opportunity to learn more about technology. It seems like a necessary skill for everyone. An interesting case, though, that I, I saw you were part of the lawsuit that's been brought against Meta, which I think goes to this kind of, we didn't understand what we were getting ourselves into at the start, but now in retrospect, maybe these these companies have gotten a little too big or a little too influential for society. At least that's my summary on the case. I'd love to hear your perspective. Sure. So this is a case that's targeting Meta, and it's nothing that Meta alone is doing. We're looking at the industry, but our consumer protection laws say you have to be honest with your consumers and you can't do things that hurt them. And we've seen, particularly where kids are involved, that the, just the mechanics of social media, the, the engagement mechanism at the core of these apps 
is exploitive and it exploits vulnerabilities in human psychology. And because they're able to A-B test on such a big scale and because they're able to hire the smartest researchers in the world who understand the nuances of you know our neuroscience in ways that most people don't, they've created these unbelievable engagement machines where it's really hard to stop once you start. And that's by design. Uh, and when you're talking about kids and you're talking about the psychological impact of this stuff on kids, I mean, I think anecdotally, everybody's seen it. But if you look at the data over the last 15 or so years, America has fallen off a cliff and our kids are having all sorts of mental health issues on a scale that they just didn't before. And the internal conversations and the experts all say social media is a big contributor to that. So, you know, we're just looking for accountability. I know a lot of people think, oh, it's a big company with a lot of money and you're just trying to get your hands in that pocket. I don't care if we get no money out of this. It's very clear what the mechanisms are that deal with controlled dopamine releases. The companies know neuroscience and they're hitting kids so hard using social dynamics to keep them on, using every possible mechanism of interaction to drive people to use it more, to minimize the length of breaks they take. And, and you see the effects like sleep deprivation because kids are on too late at night. Kids saying, I wish I could use it less, but I just can't. I feel like I can't. FOMO being weaponized to a degree that's really bad for children. You know, And there's a lot of good that comes from social media. This is not a crusade to eliminate social media, but we understand very well that it's having a terrible effect on a generation of kids. And there are decisions that the companies have made that can be undone. And we can make this a useful but not exploitive tool by putting up guardrails and making sure that they're not doing the things that they are currently doing to take advantage of that neuroscience. I certainly applaud the effort as a parent of three young kids who we don't allow to access social media, by the way, for a lot of the reasons you just laid out, right? It, it really is. The research is, is terrifying. We might try and find some links to a couple of good papers that go into this and include in the show notes here. I'm curious, what is the resolution that you're asking Meta for? Like, what, what are the specific changes? Because I imagine it's not as simple as, oh, just turn off the magic algorithm that makes kids want to stay on this all day long. So we're not getting too specific about relief that we want. I mean, what we want is for kids not to be addicted to their social media. These are really sophisticated companies and they've got unfathomable amounts of data on their users. So I think the key is the outcome, right? Like we don't want kids to stay up too late. We don't want kids to be using during school hours. We don't want kids to be using when they feel like it's hurting them. The company's able to adjust targets. They're, they're able to make all sorts of changes to the ultimate effect of the app based on review of data. They've been using it to maximize engagement, that's caused problems. And they're sophisticated actors. If the harm is clearly identified and the goals are clearly identified, technologists are in a much better position than attorneys to say exactly how the platform should behave. I worry anytime the government's interacting with a sophisticated or even a simple piece of technology, there are loads of opportunities for unintended consequences. And so I think the optimal way to resolve this, and if we can't get there and we have to do it in a more heavy-handed way, that's fine. That's a possibility. But the best outcome is always one where the company that understands its product is working with a government that understands where the lines need to be drawn. And they have the opportunity to do it in a way that causes the least harm to their overall model and that allows the utility of the product to remain to the fullest extent possible within the guidelines of minimizing harm to kids. I love that approach because as soon as something's prescribed that has a particular technical implementation, it almost certainly will be overcome 
by uh, some advance in the technology in another way. And so attaching to the goal of let's not harm children seems like the right one. And then uh, then trust the the companies to follow that lead. I'm curious, shifting gears back to this, this concept of technical literacy, and you touched on AI earlier being a big challenge, like the technical depth that I see in some of these criminal activities, like SIM swapping cases, which is at the heart of a lot of the, the financial fraud or even AI fakes. You know, I've had my grandmother tell me that she's gotten phone calls that sound just like me saying that I'm in some sort of distress and I need money urgently. Now, fortunately, she was smart enough to call me first on my phone number and verify that I, I had actually been the one calling. But I often hear stories about, you know, victims who then come to report these crimes. And when they, they come to the authorities, it's sort of like, oh, you know, that's really hard technology. Or, you know, if it's crypto related, oh, that's crypto, it's untraceable, nothing we can do. What's your perspective on that? How can we fix that problem so that there's not sort of a double harm to the victim there, the original crime, and then in, inability to, to offer any support or, or resolution? I mean, part of the issue uh, is coordination. There, there are some yeah. really sophisticated crimes out there where you need the federal resources to have any opportunity, right? I mean, I don't have international jurisdiction. My ability to influence things that go on around the world is very limited. <laughs> Federal government has better tools for that, has better connections overseas. And so, you know, for foreign-based crimes, there needs to be coordination between the people dealing with the victim and the people can do something about it. Part of it is education. And, mm -hmm. you know, there have been other issues, you know, the the war on drugs, for instance, there has been a ton of education. There's all sorts of coordination. There are joint state, federal, local working groups, task forces, you know, people detailed to other levels of government to learn techniques so they can carry those back to their agency. There's a lot of interaction there. With technology, we really need to do the same thing. And part of it is, you know, it's not just a matter of the investigators, it's also the prosecutors. So even if you've got somebody at a local agency who's able to investigate, if you don't have prosecutors who are educated, if you don't have the resources for them to deal with relatively complex white collar cases. I mean, you know, some of these may look simple from a white collar perspective, but the amount of work that needs to go into bringing a case is a whole lot more than like an aggravated assault or something. There's a resource issue there. And then victim services, you know, at the end of the day, because a lot of these guys are pretty sophisticated and are able to get away with it, maybe we need to look at victim compensation and, and how that works in ways that are a little more effective because it's very distressing when you're talking to an elderly victim who has been totally scammed into giving away 50, 80, $100,000. You know, you want to do everything you can for them. Sometimes recovering that's really hard. And sometimes it's difficult to identify who did it or even exactly what happened if they don't have appropriate record keeping and they were confused throughout the process. So there are, there are real obstacles there. I think the ultimate answer is law enforcement needs to work together better and get a lot more sophisticated at communicating both among different agencies and with the public to try to minimize these risks. And of course, financial institutions too. I know there have been some great, very sophisticated innovations there, but the more that they can do to stop these transactions, the better. One uh, really impressive uh, story we recently had on the podcast, Detective Matthew Hogan from the Connecticut State Police. And they saw uh, kind of a, a surge in activity related to Bitcoin ATMs, right? These kiosks where you can put money in and then send as Bitcoin those funds off to some address somewhere else. And, you know, they were kind of unregulated 
did, there were little, if if any, penalties on the uh, the operator of the ATM unit, who was not necessarily participating in any illicit activity directly, but was obviously a facilitator. And so he was able to work with their banking division in Connecticut and actually got a piece of legislation passed that completely shifted that balance of power, limited the the transaction value amount, the number of transactions, and actually got a clause in there that said that under certain circumstances could be a reverse of the transaction, meaning that the operator was now financially liable for facilitating kind of one of these, these scam tactics that had someone show up and start feeding bills into a crypto ATM. I'm curious, do you see things like that happening in Tennessee, where there's kind of collaboration across law enforcement and and some of the regulatory to try and make some gains here? Yeah, we've got a very receptive legislature. And I think they're interested in ensuring that we have an environment where innovation can happen and where innovators want to come, but also to put up guardrails and and keep our citizens safe. I don't know what activity we're going to see on the legislative front in the coming session, but given that we've seen more sophisticated scams out there and there's particular attention right now on elder abuse and elder scams, I suspect there are a lot of conversations going on about what the most effective legislative interventions could be. You know, I definitely look forward to working with everyone as those emerge. And I think more broadly on the consumer protection avenue, and we've touched on this a little bit earlier in the conversation, but as criminals are getting more sophisticated, their opportunity to reach targets at scale, just it's kind of mind boggling. How does your office think about that? You mentioned consumer protection is one of the the big areas that you and your staff spend time. It's disconcerting. Um, You know, I know a little bit about what the capabilities are out there, and it seems like they're only going to get better and better. But there are, you know, your traditional Nigerian prince scammers who are using different LLMs to come up with some really sophisticated, really individualized email approaches to people. And they're just going to get better and better at it. So there are legal possibilities out there, but ultimately there's got to be some sort of technological counter as well. And I don't know what that might look like, but some sort of assistance for people to help weed out the scams. I'm, I'm sure that like the various big email platforms are already working on this to some extent, but the law can only do so much and it invariably moves slower than than the technology does. So it can be a part of the solution, but it's never going to be the whole solution. That's a great point, I think, for everybody listening. We can't uh, stand idly by and wait for a new law to be passed. We've got to take some action from the side of the technology. Shifting gears a little bit, we've been pretty active at Chainalysis in researching the links between Mexican cartels and import of fentanyl into the US, which I, I see as kind of the scourge of our generation here. It seems it's just absolutely awful the number of deaths that are attributed to that drug. But it wasn't too long ago that we weren't talking about fentanyl. We were talking about the opioid crisis. So I'm curious, maybe combining those two topics, because I know that you've recently made some some significant progress, reached a settlement related to opioid distribution in the state of Tennessee, and then kind of talk about progress made there. And now what do you see when it comes to the, the challenges of fentanyl? Yeah. And I, I do think they're related problems. I mean, opioids really opened the door. And then as demand went up for opioids, you know, synthetic opioids came in and and fentanyl had a foothold and 
it certainly metastasized beyond kind of the original scope, but uh, it's all a, a continuous problem. So we settled with one of our regional food pharmacy chains that had been involved in distributing opioids. We, we had a pretty detailed complaint about our concerns with it, and uh, we talked to them, eventually reached a settlement. This is probably the sixth or seventh settlement that we've had dealing with opioids distribution and manufacturer. We settled with the big three distributors of pharmaceuticals. We settled with Walmart, Walgreens, CVS. There have been a few others. Purdue settled, but they're in bankruptcy right now. So this is something that's that's mattered a lot to Tennessee. You know, every day, around five Tennesseans die of an opioid overdose. And the, the scale here is really bad. The scale nationally is really bad. And for every death, of course, there are all sorts of people who survive but have horrific outcomes in their families and their careers, cause all sorts of law enforcement problems. It's just awful. And with fentanyl, the, the scale is totally different, right? You've got these Chinese chemicals being imported to Mexico. And over the years, the cartels have gone from requiring fairly sophisticated factories along the lines of you know what you'd see in Breaking Bad to mastering the process such that they can just have these little stand-up labs, not even labs, kitchens, just churning it out and sending it across the border. You know, this is a serious crisis. Uh, it's, it's one of the generation-defining crises that we have. And I think you're seeing increased work in state-federal collaboration. The DEA administrator, a former state attorney general, Ann Milgram, is obviously very concerned with these issues and everybody's just trying to get a handle on it. I mean, I don't know what the answer is. I think better border security to stop the incoming supply is a key part of it that we've not done a great job with. Uh, reducing demand by getting people counseling, by deterring people from engaging in this. Better detection is important. And crypto is a piece of it too, because it does make it easier to engage in transactions at a, a big scale related to criminal activity. And the more law enforcement gets on top of that, the better. But of course, crypto is designed to make it hard for law enforcement to get up on top of it. Uh, and there, there are benefits that come from having that kind of anonymity. So it's I'm not going to say it's an intractable problem, but it's a really complicated problem. And unfortunately, you know, as we work towards solutions, the human cost is just astonishingly high. It really is. It's one of the things that keeps me up at night as I think about the world my kids are growing up into. We're at Chainalysis. I'll give a little sort of shameless plug here, though, trying to help law enforcement on this uh, detection and make them a little more attuned to understanding the flow of funds as they rotate from that cycle through the, the Mexican cartels into the Chinese precursor shops. So trying to do our part here to support law enforcement sophistication and taking action there. Different topic. Early last year, a couple lawmakers in Tennessee introduced bills proposing to allow the state as well as counties and municipalities to invest in crypto and NFTs. I'm curious your take on this. I mean, we've talked a lot about the, the illicit side of the world of crypto, but there's also legitimate businesses who are doing real things in the world that, that have nothing to do with crime that are connected to crypto. What's your take on the, the state potentially being able to invest and, and transact in cryptocurrency? I think the key there is stability. Yeah. You know, Tennessee is fiscally probably the best state in the country, certainly one of the very best states in the country. We have the lowest per capita debt burden. Uh, we have the lowest per capita tax burden. We take our fiscal situation here extremely seriously. We've got a treasurer, a comptroller, you know, all the officials in the administration that oversee our state's fiscal foundation. They're really good. And so with crypto, it's been around for a while, but there are obviously 
still some problems. You know, there's a trial going on right now that that reflects some of those problems. And so from my perspective, there's nothing inherently invalid about crypto as compared to other assets. But I think the ecosystem, we need to make sure before big chunks of state or county money get invested, that there is a secure and reliable ecosystem that filters out the scammers. And I don't think we're necessarily far off from that. I know there was a lot of debate from various people concerned about that legislation who want to make sure that Tennessee's money does not go anywhere where we're not going to be able to get it back. I think as crypto matures, it's going to be easier and easier to sell that and it will be viewed in a different light. It's not quite the Wild West anymore, but we're we're still dealing with the vestigial Wild Westness is my impression of where we're at. And the state is not looking to hit a unicorn and swing for the fences here. I mean, this is reliable, stodgy investment and you want to have some exposure to risk, but more limited here than in most contexts. So I, I think it'll be a while before that's fully embraced by all the relevant actors here. The conservative attitude makes a lot of sense given the current economic climate. And, and as you said, this still being early in the world of crypto. So I appreciate that. As we come to the end of the discussion, I'm curious, what can our audience do to help you? We've got founders, innovators, we've got current and former law enforcement policymakers. They all listen to the show regularly. What would you like to say to them? So I think the biggest thing we need is information and advocacy. Uh, if there are things that we are not doing, I'd love to hear about it. If there are things that we should do differently, I'd love to hear about it. White papers can be really handy. Shorter is always better when it comes to white papers. But, you know, feedback is critical here. And I think at the law enforcement level, it's a little bit easier. At the bigger policy level, there are points of entry that you can have, uh, but it's a little bit trickier. My team and I are very interested in hearing from people coming at this from a practical perspective and from an academic perspective, we're still trying to better understand everything about the mechanics and the legalities. And, you know, it's a, it's a moving target on both fronts. So anything that will help educate us is very helpful. The other thing is, you know, just thinking ahead and identifying in the longer term, what it might look like to have better integration. Privacy concerns are huge. So we've seen what happened in China with the social credit score yeah. and the potential abuse and, uh, and government oppression that can come from keeping too good a track of people's transactions, of centralizing everything into an easily monitored mechanism. And so figuring out how we can maximize the opportunity to use technology without accidentally or intentionally creating a dystopia is really important. Uh, and there are going to be things that are purely legislative on that front, but there are going to be policy decisions and enforcement decisions that come into play there as well. And so giving us as much of a heads up about potential future missteps is also useful. And we're not we're not all crypto all the time. I mean, there's a lot going on and I have to try to stay on top of many different issues. But I recognize that there is a great deal of opportunity here that in Tennessee, we have a vibrant ecosystem, crypto founders and investors and innovators. And 
you know, I want to make sure that we're giving them a policy environment that supports them, gives them opportunities to do whatever they need to do to succeed, while at the same time provides protections for all the people in the state to make sure that they're not on the losing end of new technology, that they're not being exploited, that by being creative and open, we're not being so open that, you know, we allow the harms to come in unchecked. Well, I think that is a great place to end our conversation today, Jonathan. This was terrific fun. I learned a lot. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's been a great talk. Thanks for listening to another episode. Our team has been working hard to make our content available on all the major platforms. So right now, do me a favor, take out your phone, head over to your favorite social media app. You can subscribe to our new TikTok, our revamped YouTube. You can sign up for our LinkedIn newsletter. And of course, follow us on X or Telegram. Just search for at Chainalysis on any of those platforms. Now, as you might've seen this week, I am very happy to announce that the Chainalysis team and KPMG in Canada have teamed up to help organizations combat illicit activity in crypto. The collaboration advances the certification of KPMG professionals as Chainalysis certified investigators, which enhances their ability to assist clients across public sector agencies and private sector businesses to detect and prevent illicit activity related to crypto assets. Kunal Basan, who's a KPMG partner and co-leader of the crypto assets and blockchain practice at KPMG Canada, echoed this by stating, our clients look to us as trusted advisors in the crypto asset space. And our relationship with Chainalysis is a commitment to helping those clients be more agile, innovative, and compliance focused in an ecosystem that's constantly evolving. You can read the full story on our blog, which is linked in the show notes. 